If you want the ANC to give Cape, the Cape independence, you're going to have to put pressure on them. But you're not going to give it to us uh, simply because we asked nicely. Not just economic pressure, but, uh, you know, uh, but there would actually have to be something happening on the ground. And uh, the existing groups are not really um, thinking along those lines. Um, but it's only a question of time before the penny drops and, and somebody picks it up and says, okay, um, we're going to have to swing over to more decisive action. Hello, my name is Donald and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're talking with Patrick Melly. Patrick is from the Cape Independence Movement and an economist. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Yeah, no, and thank you so much for appearing on my show. And so, Patrick, how did you get involved in the Cape Independence Movement? Well, you know, I used to go up to Johannesburg on a regular basis, and it always struck me, you know, that that is a different uh, a type of country. You felt that you were, you know, when, when, when you got off the plane there, you immediately had the sense you were in a different country. And uh, when 1994 came along and uh, some people started talking about uh, Cape independence, and, uh, but they weren't taken very seriously, but I took note of what they were saying. And then in 1996, when um, preparing for the municipal elections, I was interviewed on SATV and I actually said, you know, I would love to see the Cape become independent. And uh, remarkably, a hell of a lot of people actually complimented me on that remark afterwards. For a long time afterwards, people would stop me in the street and say, I saw you on television and I, I like what you said. But, you know, the, the old problem was there. The people said to me also, they like the idea, but they, there is a need to keep the ANC out of power and therefore they cannot vote for us. They would have to vote for the, um, uh, uh, the National Party at that time and later on, of course, the DA. And that is a situation that has continued to exist all the way up until today. And in, we saw it once again in the recent municipal elections. And that is a reality that we all have to deal with. And, um, and if we are to make any progress, we're going to have to deal with that issue successfully and in a rational way. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting you, you bring that up because many of the people I've spoken to say the same thing. There's just something different between Johannesburg and Cape Town, a sort of different atmosphere. Why do you think that is? What, do you think that the Johannesburg area is more conservative and Western Cape people are more liberal? Uh, yes, that, that, that actually was very noticeable. But quite apart from that, the demographics of Johannesburg was completely different to the demographics of Cape Town. That in itself um, made a big difference, even though the ANC had not yet come to power. You know, th th there was still that when you walked in the streets of Johannesburg, you, you were aware that you were in a different place altogether to what Cape Town is. Um, and uh, 
it is less so today because of the influx of people from other parts of the country to the Western Cape. But, uh, but still, to a considerable extent, you know, it, it is a different city to Johannesburg. Mm, I did definitely think the DA's rule in the Western Cape gives us a trailer of what we can do if we were to secede. Um, but I know you, you believe that many people in the Cape independence movement, they are too... They believe Cape secession would be too easy to achieve. So I don't. I've, I know you. You are not of that opinion. That's so easy to achieve Cape independence. Can you give us some examples? Why do you believe that is the case? Right. Okay. I think uh, first of all, you you get people who believe that what we need to do is hold a referendum, and win the referendum, uh, you are two thirds of the way there. Uh, but now you know the problem is number one. The, it, it is not yet constitutionally possible for the Premier of the Western Cape to call a referendum. There is a bill before Parliament uh, which will, number one, amend the Electoral Act to make it possible for the Premier to call a referendum, and number two, do away with the existing Referendums Act. Now, that bill has to be passed by Parliament still. I understand that it has received constitutional muster in that it is, it, there is nothing in the bill that is unconstitutional as such. But it still has to be debated in Parliament. And we don't know what the attitude of the ANC and others is going to be uh, to the provisions of that bill. And as, as sure as we're sitting here, we, we can uh, forecast quite confidently that the ANC might not object to the idea of a Premier calling a referendum, but they would most certainly object to a Premier calling a referendum on the issue of Cape independence or, or the independence of any part of the country. So I think the, you know, as the bill goes through Parliament, I, at this stage, I foresee the ANC attempting to introduce amendments to the bill, which will prevent this possibility from happening. Maybe they might say, well, you know, you, you can only call such a referendum with the, uh, with the acceptance of the proposal, uh, well, only if the president of the country allows such a referendum to be called, can such a referendum be called. So there's going to be some sort of provision. It's not going to be a straightforward matter of the ANC accepting a DA bill and uh, it goes through the... Uh, the stages of parliamentary debate and uh, processes um, unscathed. There are going to be issues along the line. I'm quite sure of that. Also, <clears throat> you know, one must remember that there's a tremendous amount of opposition out there uh, to the idea of uh, Cape independence um, amongst civil society. And um, especially in the townships, the and even on the Cape Flats, you know, people, um, they are scared that if the wrong people come into, con come into power in an independent Cape, uh, you might have a return of apartheid and, uh, you know, um, there will be a, a backtracking on service delivery, um, even poorer service delivery than what they're getting now. The Cape Flats will be continued to be neglected and even worse in the future. So 
all of these issues have to be overcome. And, um, and not enough attention is being paid to these issues. And it's just a little bit too much attention being paid. We have to have a referendum. And if we can get a referendum, we are almost there. We win a referendum as easy as anything. Well, you know, I've got news. I've done a calculation. If you go onto my website, you'll see the calculations there. It is actually very difficult to win a referendum. Now, the demographics are not in favor of winning a referendum by a very large majority at all. And for example, now, if you, the, 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 the black population of the Western Cape is roughly, well, it used to be in the early 30s uh, percentages, but now it is believed by various studies to be closer to 40%. Now, if you take a, a quarter of them, say 10%, of the, which would constitute 10% of the population of the Western Cape, uh, voting in favor of Cape independence. Um, and let us say uh, a certain percentage of whites vote for Cape independence. One then asks the question, okay, what percentage of colored people would have to vote yes in a referendum in order to win that referendum? And the figures actually become quite spooky because you now have a, a you now have a, a, a a combination of percentages that go something like a 10% black, 70% white, and something in order of 80% colored. And, you know, and, and the possibility of actually achieving that result um, is a bit difficult. And that's, that's only to give you a 50% plus one vote. No. If you want to have a, uh, a successful outcome of a referendum that says to the world, this, you know, um, is dramatic, you can't ignore it, you want something, you want a percentage support in the vicinity of 70 to 80%, if possible. And that is just, just not on. Now, quite apart from all the mathematics, when you hold a referendum, you have to decide who is going to participate in that referendum? What is the, on what basis are you going to say, this person may participate, that person may not participate. Now, I have heard people talking about, okay, if you were resident in the Western Cape in 1994, um, you will be allowed to vote in the referendum. Now, do me a favor, how the hell are you going to determine who was and who wasn't resident in the Western Cape in 1994. And um, since 1994, 27 years have gone by, you've had a large influx of people. And in terms of the constitution, those people who have come into the Western Cape are now citizens of the Western Cape. So how do you say to any citizen of the Western Cape, you may not vote in this referendum? It cannot be done. It just cannot be done. And in addition, if you have a referendum, there will be a, a referendum campaign in which you will have one side uh, propagating the idea of Cape independence and the other side will be opposing the idea of Cape independence. That debate will be tremendous. At the same time, you will have people flooding in to the Western Cape to boost the numbers of the 
anti-independence vote. Now you can argue to your, uh, to high heaven that that is not uh, that is not ethical, it's not valid, and everything. But how do you stop people from coming in and saying, "Okay, you may come in, but you may not have the vote"? How do you do that? It's it's <laughs> it's not going to be on. Who's going to police it? Who's going to enforce it? Forget it, you know. And then on top of that, you're going to have the ANC making all sorts of promises of how wonderful it's going to be in the Western Cape if you vote no. Of course, the fact that, the, that they haven't the ability to keep the promises and got no intention of doing so, um, you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is they will make those undertakings. And life being what it is, there are quite a number of people who will actually fall for that nonsense, and they will actually accept the uh, 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 the uh, the honesty of the ANC in this regard, or they'll take a chance or whatever the case may be. the The referendum campaign is not going to be an easy campaign at all, and it could very well be marked by a lot of violence. Mm. And then, of course, the who is going to lead the referendum campaign? That's another issue, and uh, we'll come back to that just now. Yeah, yeah, and definitely, um, I'm going to ask a question on that. But Patrick, um, that, don't you think the support will only increase over time? Because I believe there have been two it polling. Can yes, it can yes. But the thing is, what I what I fear is that as the longer, the more time that goes by, the more difficult it becomes to win a referendum in certain respects. And um, uh, to a large extent, uh, you know, the white and colored people do have a substantial um, percentage of them already in support of the, of the idea of Cape independence, but you need to take it further. And as time goes by, as the demographics of the Western Cape uh, change, uh, it's gonna become more and more difficult to win a referendum. Now, this raises a question, how do you get independence if you can't win a referendum? And uh, now I think everybody will admit that the country is, is headed in a bad direction. And the thing to do is simply to take your independence when the opportunity arises. And that opportunity will arise when there is chaos and turmoil in the country and that is when a, a grouping of uh, community leaders, business leaders, um, church leaders, academics, civil action activists can come together to form an, uh, a kind of salvation committee and saying, okay, the only way we can extricate ourselves from this mess is to succeed, unilaterally succeed and present the entire world with a fate accompany. Under those circumstances, it'll be extremely difficult for the ANC to actually say, hang on, let's break off from our civil war. We've got to deal with the issue in the Western Cape. No, it's not going to be so easy. That, that those are going to be the most favorable circumstances under which the Western Cape can unilaterally succeed. Is Another thing about a referendum is that even if you have a yes vote, um, the, 
the authorities don't have to accept the result of a referendum. A referendum is merely a guide. And uh, it's not a good idea to ignore the result of a referendum, but if you don't like the result and you don't want to go ahead with it, there is nothing in law that, that would say you have to implement the result of a referendum. There's nothing like that at all. Mm. Uh, your, your, your plan on creating a sort of a shadow government, isn't that essentially what the Seitlanders is doing at the moment? They're, they're preparing for like a, um, a chaos moment in South Africa in which they can create their own nation. Yes, they are, do, yeah, they are working along those lines. And, uh, and quite honestly, they are the, they, I find them to be the most sensible of all the groups. And because for one thing, they say very clearly, you know, don't do anything illegal. Just wait for it to happen. And, and then we'll take it. Hmm. And I think that's a very sensible approach. And um, yeah, you're not doing anything illegal. You can't be locked up for just waiting. Hmm. And isn't the elephant in the, in the room that you'll need the support of the DA if you want the Western Cape to succeed? You can have all the church leaders, the community leaders, but you, you'll need um, the DA mayors, the ministers, the premier. Won't you need their support? Okay. This is right. Yeah, that is very important. Okay. You, what has to happen is that you've got to have a massive um, campaign to popularize the idea of Cape independence, but not only the idea, but also to uh, make people believe that it is possible and economically viable. And, uh, and this is something that's not really been done at the moment. It's, people are rather working on the basis, oh, we don't want to be part of South Africa. We want to be free. Let's, let's have an independent Cape. But a lot of people are asking questions about the economic viability of an independent Western Cape. And, um, and very few people have actually done any work on this. I have done some work on it and, uh, and uh, uh, we could talk about that some other time because it's quite a discussion in itself. But these questions that the people are asking are not being properly answered. And until such time as they are properly answered, the people are going to be a bit lukewarm. They would like to be in an independent Cape, but at the same time, they don't have the confidence that an independent Cape will work. And this is where you've got to start bringing in um, the academics who can actually contribute you know, to the whole debate on Cape independence. At the moment, they are not in they take one look at the amateurishness of the groups propagating independence and they say, oh, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that lot. No, no, no ways, you know. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so a hell of a lot of work has got to be done to actually bring community leaders into the fold because they are the ones who are going to drive the momentum towards independence. If you don't have those drivers, it's going to stand still. And it is standing still at the moment. Yeah, I've read a very interesting book, The Psychology of Mass Movements, in which the author 
argues that for any mass movement to succeed or to grow, you need first the support of intellectuals. They, they create the groundswell, they make the argument for you, and then you get the leaders that arise from it. But um, yeah, it's a very interesting book, and I, yeah, I definitely recommend anyone to read that. But um, I've spoken to R.V. Johnson, and it, and it was a very interesting interview, and in that interview, he said that it's not necessarily the case that the DA will give the people of the Western Cape a referendum because most of their voting base is in Gauteng. So what do, you th- do you think the DA will actually give the people of the Western Cape a referendum? Yes, I do. I've actually asked them, and they said yes. They said yes. Um, I've, I've had discussions with um, several people, including the person driving the, uh, um, the bill through Parliament, and what she said was to me, was she totally opposed to Cape independence, but she will never deny the people of the Cape the democratic right to hold a referendum on the issue. So, um, yeah, and she's not alone in thinking that way. There are quite a, a number of DA leaders who actually think that way, but make no mistake about it. If When a referendum is held, those people will come out and and campaign for a no vote, but they will not prevent you from holding a referendum. No, that, uh, no, to be fair, they, uh, I don't think they're going to be, um, I think they're going to keep the word, they will allow a referendum to be held on the issue. But isn't that a serious problem? If an organization like the DA with so much money behind it supports, will support a vote to remain? I mean, that's going to be a serious problem. Ah, but now you see, this is the thing, you see. Um, what's got to be done is that the DA has to be undermined. You've got to concentrate on converting the DA uh, ward councillors and other, and other uh, public representatives so that your, your um, support is is not reliant upon the leadership of the DA, but rather the public representatives within the DA. If a majority of Cape representatives, whether they be members of parliament or councillors, etc., cetera, um, come out in favor of Cape independence, that would be something the DA leadership would be unable to ignore. And it's not gonna be it's not going to be simply a matter of saying, you know, we, the leadership, uh, have decided X, and we, we have decided we are not going to support Cape independence, therefore everybody else must uh, agree with us. It's not going to be so simple. The DA leadership is going to be faced with a division within the party. And, uh, um, and whether they like it or not, they are going to have to allow their members a free vote on the issue. If they don't, then what could happen is that the DA could split. And, uh, and we could see the formation of a new party here in the Western Cape, um, subscribing substantially to DA principles, but being a separate party with a new name altogether. And uh, after all, uh, you know, if the, if the leadership of the party is going to be is going to come from other parts of South Africa, you have to ask the question, is it a good idea that the people of the Cape have their future decided by people in other parts of the country? 
The future of the Western Cape has got to be decided by the people in the Western Cape, by the people for the Western, uh, of the Western Cape, for the people of the Western Cape, and not by people sitting in some boardroom in Pretoria or Johannesburg or wherever. Their support would be welcome, but um, they cannot expect to have any big role to play in the direction and control of the process. Mm. That has to happen here in the Cape. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the point that they will be forced to be agnostic on the issue of whether it's leave or remain. We, we had a similar situation in the Brexit vote, where the Conservative Party said each member chooses for himself if you want to support, remain or leave. And in that Brexit vote, we had Nigel Farage. And a lot of people say Nigel Farage is basically the person who drove Brexit and made it succeed. Isn't that really something we are lacking here in the Western Cape? A charismatic figure, a leader of the party that's really pushing this. Yes, we do lack that. We definitely do lack that. But at the same time, remember, if such a person emerges, he will do a tremendous amount of good. But he doesn't necessarily have to be a politician, a necessarily a leader of a political party. You know, Nigel Farage, um, he is like uh, the great figurehead of Brexit. But in terms of national politics, uh, you know, uh, representation in the House of Commons, they didn't get anywhere. Yeah, they got two seats actually. You know, that's as far as they got, even though they had 27% of the vote in England. Um, they got only those two seats. And, uh, you know, so, um, but yet the man, uh, he, you could say he engineered Brexit. And so you could have something very similar happening here. Um, and uh, I think the political parties, the idea of a political party winning an election and taking the Cape uh, uh, to independence, I think that's a bit, um, I don't think that's going to happen very easily. Uh, there are several issues uh, around those political parties that make it very difficult for it to happen. If you take Freedom Front Plus, let's deal with them first. Freedom Front Plus is a national party. They have the headquarters in Pretoria and the majority of people sitting on that Dachbestier are non-Cape people. Now, whatever decisions they take is going to be in the interests, number one, of the party as a whole and their supporters. They are not going to take decisions um, contrary to the interests of, let us say, their supporters in Gauteng. So now we come to a situation whereby the Western Cape Freedom Front Plus has to abide by the decisions of a Dachbestier meeting in Pretoria. And that cannot always be in the interests of the Western Cape. So now if the Freedom Front Plus in the Cape want to be a force for Cape independence, what they should consider doing is actually breaking away from the National Freedom Front Plus, forming their own party here in the Western Cape under a new name. I think that would do their credibility an enormous amount of good. Because, because make no mistake about it, 
There are a lot of good people in the Freedom Front Plus. And uh, I know because I was a member of the Freedom Front Plus and um, they are, a lot of them are actually very much in favor of Cape independence. But like I said, as long as they are a part of a national party, their, their ability to act in, in favor of Cape independence is restricted as much as they don't want to admit it. It, it has to be restricted. They, uh, so once again, I want to see decisions regarding Cape independence taken here in the Cape and not up there. Why, why is that so important? Isn't there a lot of people outside of the Western Cape who would also be in favor of Western Cape independence because then they can come here? I mean, there's probably a lot of people who are... Yes, of course. Why not? Why not? That's why I say to them, you know, you, you, if you're in favor of Cape independence and you, why don't you move to the Cape? We'd welcome them in the Cape, yeah? You know, it's, um, if you've got a small business or medium-sized business, even quite a number of businesses could, could actually relocate to the Cape. Uh, there are businesses that can't relocate and one understands that. But, uh, you know, if you're able to relocate to the Cape, do so. Yeah, I just think it's perhaps an issue of job opportunities that you, you can have safety and securities, but still with the national government, like pulverizing the economy, it's difficult to re relocate anywhere with yeah, the, the lack of job opportunities. But um, yeah, so I, I know you're also an economist. Can you give us some prospects if the Western Cape were to secede? What will we see in the Western Cape? Can we get 10% economic growth? I <laughs> look. The thing is, um, the economy of a Western Cape, uh, to some extent, is going to be, well, to a large extent, is going to be dependent upon the extent to which the ANC interferes with the economic activity in the Western Cape. Um, if you have chaos outside the borders of the Cape, um, one must be realistic and expect that it's going to impact upon the economy of the Western Cape. So you can't say necessarily become independent and hey, presto, the economy just takes off Zoom and we experience uh, dramatic growth rates, etc. It's not going to be quite so simple. There's going to be an, a transitional phase where we make the necessary adjustments. But once that transitional phase has been overcome, there is no reason why a Western Cape economy cannot flourish and uh, and be more um, more successful than what the South African economy is at the moment. And uh, so, um, yeah, we, we got a lot going for us. But, you know, when you talk about the Cape, you know, uh, we must not talk about simply the Western Cape as defined by the borders in the Constitution. We should look at the Cape at the Cape as a whole, being the Western Cape plus portions, the Western portions of the Eastern Cape and a substantial portion of the Northern Cape, especially in the Macquarie Now, when one does that, and you look at the economic resources that are available, uh, you can really go places with the economy. You know, you've got all the mineral resources of the Northern Cape, which can be exploited and you can have beneficiary 
uh, activities taking place here in the Cape. Uh, you've got gas and oil deposits off the southern Cape coast. You've got gas and oil deposits off the west coast. You know, you know, I, <laughs> you know we don't even have to think about you know, how much benefit those deposits can be. Everybody knows that if you strike oil, you know, you are, um, my God, you, can, can, you know, you've got billions and billions to play around with, you know. The, in fact, the danger is that the ANC will absolutely not want to see the Western Cape become independent simply on account of losing control of those gas and oil deposits. And so, uh, yeah, but those deposits in the hands of an independent Cape government used uh, properly and constructively can remarkably change the, the, the lives of millions of people in the Cape. And uh, so, um, oh, for God's sake. I'm sorry about that. No problem. You, okay, I don't know how they are to get rid of it. There's some emails coming through. I didn't, I didn't think they would pop up on the screen like that. Um, okay. The, no, you can, you can transform the lives of millions of people. You can, uh, the economic upliftment of the people on the Cape Flats and similar areas could be dramatic. You know, it, it, it's, it's, we, we just can't ignore that possibility. We cannot allow the benefits of those deposits uh, to flow to uh, BEE uh, 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 people living in other parts of the country. No, the benefits flowing from the exploitation of those deposits have to be, have to come to the people of the Cape. And the only way to ensure that is going to be to have an independent Cape. Otherwise, it's going to go north and elsewhere. Well, but are, are minerals so important in economy in today's age? I mean, for example, there are economies like Singapore, Hong Kong, Switzerland. I believe they don't have any real minerals or resources to speak of, and they're some of the richest countries in the world. So is it really that important? Yes, but remember, remember what they've done is they have um relied heavily upon uh financial services and things like that and in the case of both switzerland and singapore they are ideally placed geographically um to serve as as financial hubs switzerland as an excellent financial hub for europe and uh and even for that matter you know extending into north africa and the middle east Singapore uh, is a fantastic hub for the whole of the Middle East, <laughs> for the whole of the Far East. So, um, you know, we are not in that position. Now, we have heard uh, many times that South Africa is the gateway to Africa. But, you know, let's, let's look at this claim. If you are exporting from, let us say, the Americas, where in Africa is the best place to go in? Which ports are the best ports to use? They, at the moment, 
they a lot a lot of them are using South Africa as a base. But think about it, West Africa potentially is far more important than South Africa is to people in North America and even Latin America. Um, when it comes to the Far East, the, the obvious place to come into Africa is Kenya. Now, why would anybody want to use South Africa as a gateway to Africa if you can use Kenya or Nigeria as gateways? It doesn't make sense. Now, I know at the moment South Africa is more developed and our financial services industries are um, far more advanced than these industries are in West Africa or East Africa, but that is going to change over time. And um, so at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, who, for who is South Africa a gateway to Africa? Want to know who? The penguins from Antarctica. <laughs> Think about it. You know, so we haven't really got all that much going for us geographically. So mm. we have to use our resources to the maximum extent um, uh, to overcome that geographic disadvantage. Yeah, it's interesting but you bring it. It's interesting you bring it up because probably South Africa was the gateway to India. That was really the, the main reason why the British colonized it. But obviously, like you say, it makes sense in today's age that the Chinese and the Asian countries would go through Kenya and the Americas would go through Nigeria or West Africa. But sorry, yeah, you wanted to say something? No, 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 no you continue. Uh, yeah, but not, you know, it's... it's um... When it comes to the financial services industry, uh, it's a very interesting thing, you know, that uh, not a lot of people know that uh, you know, immediately they think, oh, Joburg is the financial center of South Africa. And, uh, but, you know, in the last three, four years, Cape Town has become the financial hub of Africa south of the Sahara. So, you know, so even there in the financial services industry, we have a hell of a lot going for us. And if you look at the financial services companies in South Africa, all the banks are have the headquarters in Johannesburg, but um, a large amount, a large percentage of their shareholdings are actually held by Cape Townians or Cape Town-based companies, etc. So uh, you know, the 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 clout from a shareholder point of view of the Cape is far greater than what people actually realize. At one stage, something like over 60% of shares on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange were actually owned by Cape Town-based residents, uh, human beings, and financial services companies. And th that is something that a lot of people don't know. And uh, you just got to take a company like uh, uh, like old mutual Sandlin, you know, well, old mutual now has its headquarters, half of its headquarters in Johannesburg. But, you know, uh, if you take an insurance company like Sandlin, their headquarters is here in Belleville. And you can imagine the, the large number of shares that they have on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And then you've got the Stellenbosch Mafia. Uh, you can imagine, you know, what goes on there. And uh, uh, to some extent, even First Grand is controlled by people in Stellenbosch. So, uh, and you know, uh, you've got a lot of your investment companies 
um, like Coronation Trust, for example, they're based down here in Cape Town. There's a whole string of them. And uh, it, it's absolutely amazing when you actually lift up uh, the valley and you look, you look behind and you see exactly what is going on here. You know, you, uh, people would be amazed at just how strong the Cape is when it comes to financial services. That's so fascinating. We've got a lot going for us. A hell of a lot going for us. Mm. Yeah. Um, Patrick, I forgot to ask you. I, I don't know if you answered or you feel you answered this question about the legal issue. I mean, there's the there's the yeah. political route and then there's the legal route of forcing through international <coughs> organizations a referendum in the Western Cape. Um, I believe you believe that there's some figures in the Cape Independence Movement that's not so clued up with that. Can you explain to us, is it is it more difficult than we think it is? Or give us some yes, examples it of it. It is more difficult. You see, the thing is this, that um, in the international community, uh, there is a feeling that countries, states should not succeed if it's possible to avoid it. There are enough problems in the world and um, we don't need more problems, we need less. And so the general feeling is that a state should not be allowed to succeed unless one of two things is happening. Number one, um, the, the, the potential state is um, being oppressed by uh, the mother country, so to speak. So if you were to find that the Western Cape is being persecuted by the ANC, then there would be a case on those grounds for the Western Cape to succeed from South Africa. But we can't actually say that we are persecuted. We can't say a thing like that. The other thing is decolonization. Um, if it's an act of decolonization, then you, you know, then it is not only accepted, but it's actually demanded that, you know, you be, uh, uh, that you succeed from the country. Beyond that, uh, there is a great reluctance to encourage states to um, succeed. And in fact, the other way around. If you look at Catalonia, for example, they held a referendum. They won the referendum. And look what happened. Uh, the leaders had to flee the country. And what happened? They got arrested in Germany and, you know. But wasn't that referendum illegal? Ah, oh, but it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it was illegal. The fact is, the, the result of the referendum was not recognized. That is the reality. And, um, you know, even if it was legal, they would still have a... Um, uh, a, a they would still have a problem trying to convince the Spanish government to give them their independence. And in the Spanish government, as, as you know, they are very clearly uh, not in favor of granting independence to Catalonia. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. So for it to happen, you've got to start putting pressure upon the mother country. And uh, that pressure, very often has to be in the form of violence or the potential threat of violence. 
as happened in South Sudan, for example. South Sudan didn't just become independent because they and the Sudanese government decided, oh, it's a good idea for South Sudan to be independent. There was a civil war. And uh, the AU actually intervened to mediate a peace-breaking deal between the warring sides. And in terms of that peace-breaking deal, um, South Sudan was allowed to become independent. Um, when you had the breakup of the old Yugoslavia, we all know what happened there with Bosnia and all the rest of it, etc., etc. Okay, occasionally you do get uh, peaceful successions like happened uh, in Czechoslovakia. It's split into two in a very peaceful way because both parties found it uh, convenient that they should split and they would both continue to be members of the European Union in any case. So, uh, you know, there was no, it was no big deal them succeeding. But uh, if you look at America, America didn't gain its independence um, peacefully. They had to fight a war of independence. The same applied to the whole of Latin America. And you had Simon Bolivar uh, uh, going from one, one territory in South America to the next to go and fight wars of independence against Spain. And uh, now, of course, uh, some people might want to say, okay, well, what about Africa, the decolonization of Africa? Uh, remember, if Britain and France did not grant independence to the various colonies in Africa, they would have been confronted with in an enormous number of um, uprisings all over the continent. They would never have been able to fight um, these uh, wars of independence in all these countries. It would have bankrupted both Britain and France, and we would probably have seen the ending of the monarchy in Britain. Uh, it would have been so bad. And uh, if you don't believe that, you only got to look at what happened in Portugal. Portugal decided, no, we're not going to give independence to our territories. And what happened? They ended up fighting wars in all four of the territories in Africa. And they were losing. They were losing badly. In the end, the only way out was for there to be a coup d'etat in Portugal. And the new government then said, okay, we will grant independence to these uh, places. And um, that's what happened. So there again, you see, uh, um, without the pressure of violence or the, or the threat of violence, um, governments don't very easily grant independence to territories. Even India, for that matter, India is a great example. You know, oh, you know, um, uh, they gained independence as a result of negotiations with the British, etc. But the fact of the matter is that from the late 1800s already, there was armed resistance to British rule in India. And it was getting worse and worse every year that went by. The British are lucky that a person like Gandhi came into the picture and fought a peaceful campaign for independence. If it weren't for Gandhi, there would have been a great big war of independence in India. And God knows what would have happened to Britain if they had to fight that war. So, um, yeah, so if you, if you want the ANC to give Cape, the Cape independence, you're going to have to put pressure on them.
Yeah, now that's very and interesting. They're certainly not going to give it to us uh, simply because we asked nicely. Mm. And uh, I think and perhaps the best way to do it is via economic pressure, like withholding taxes. Mm. That will probably Sorry. be the uh, um, economic pressure by withholding taxes. That will probably be the best way to do it. All sorts of pressure, all sorts of pressure, you know. Um, not just economic pressure, but, uh, you know, uh, but there would actually have to be something happening on the ground. And uh, the existing groups are not really um, thinking along those lines. Um, but it's only a question of time before the penny drops and, and somebody picks it up and says, okay, um, we're going to have to swing over to more decisive action. Yeah, and that will be very interesting. But thank you, Patrick. I see our time is running out. This has been a very interesting okay. conversation. I want to give you one last opportunity if you want to add, plug, or say anything that you want to. Um, yeah. I think the people who are campaigning for Cape independence have to realize that they've got to take the, the civil society groups along with them. You can't just take decisions on their behalf. Uh, civil society, particularly here in the Cape and more so in the rest of the country, is very well organized, very active and very well resourced. There are foundations headquartered in places like Germany, the UK and America who have big offices in Cape Town. And these foundations dispense hundreds of millions of rands every year to civil action groups in Cape Town. And uh, I can take you to a place in Woodstock where you, where you go into a, a room and you have a bank of computers. And those computers have a database consisting only of uh, foundations and charitable institutions, etc that you can apply to, to obtain funding for your civil action groups. And, uh, but they tend to be not of a conservative nature, they tend to be more of a, a pink liberal, sometimes very left-wing nature. And, um, you know, so when you, when you start talking about Cape independence, if you don't take 